0: My name is Cole Roberts, and this conversation is with New Zealand legend, Cy Moore. Uh, It was intended to be about 30 minutes, but it's kind of tricky to talk to an interesting guy like Cy for only 30 minutes. I felt like you could just nudge him in a direction and kind of watch him or listen to him go, and you don't really want it to stop. So we ended up talking for about an hour uh, about a whole bunch of random stuff. And in the end, we did get to film photography. So if you hang in there. Uh, the last bit, he kind of opens up on his thoughts. There, we recorded it in March 2019. Uh, I was in Sweden. He was in New Zealand. Hope you enjoy the chat. So, how you doing, man? Where are you doing. at? What's up?
1: Doing real good. Currently in Auckland, uh, New Zealand, bottom of the South Pacific. Close to Antarctica. Um, yeah, we're in the height of summer, like the height, like the absolute height of our summer season right now. So everything's crazy, but yeah, it's good. Life is good. The, well, the gar- in,
0: that, in, in that time of year, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Saimor hot weather is gardening. So why don't you share a bit about your gardening passion with us?
1: Oh, yeah. I was about to say the garden is going, the garden is going well. Uh, Currently, uh, cucumbers quite popular. This is the first year I've actually tried to grow eggplants, um, and you know, it's kind of gone crazy, you know. So, um, I caught what
0: stopped you in the past from growing eggplants?
1: Um, just not trying. Yeah, pretty much.
0: Wow. So, how did you get into gardening? I know this is a really on point topic.
1: Oh, it's it's totally on point. You've like straight to the heart. Now, I like I grew up. Um, I grew up on a farm in the South Island, and my um my parents like big gardeners you know like most farmers are they just have a massive garden eat out of the garden and I don't know it always seems to be um a thing that I've done is grown stuff or cared about growing stuff or it's really it's super satisfying like to if you think that like a huge amount of our life is dealing with gadgets and cameras and screens and stuff you know to just go outside and beat yourself against the dirt it's kind of like It's kind of like a pretty wonderful thing. My dad's got a great saying that he's like, you know, any problem in the world can be solved with dirt on your hands, Um, which is pretty, it's pretty true. It's a really, I don't know, what would you call it? Um, Someone would probably call it these days and just say, you know, gardening's like just mindfulness, but it's just gardening. It's pretty great.
0: Slow living,
1: I like it. Slow living, <laughs> yeah. But we, I mean, we, we, um, we have heaps of great photographers staying with us all the time. Our our photography community friends all around the world are always staying with us. We're always eating out of the garden. We're always in the backyard, sitting at the picnic table. You know, picking things, eating things. It's just kind of part, a natural part of the rhythm of, I think, how we live. And it's it's just really nice that it comes out of your own dirt.
0: And you're like, I, I jokingly, or half jokingly said yesterday on um, Instagram stories when I was uh, mentioning that I was going to speak to you today that you're the most interesting guy that I've ever met. And I, I, I kind of am kind of serious about that because you have so many interests and in gardening being one of them. And then you can go down the line of your interests. So, like, how do you kind of like, <laughs> how do you find time to pursue all these uh, interests?
1: I, I, it's, it's an interesting question I don't know I think it's it's more um it's more the living there's a there's a dude like a Italian chef like Massimo Bottura if you any you know if you've ever watched Light chef's table he's he's on this he's in there somewhere you know I'm, I'm pretty sure but I've I've always been pretty I've always kind of followed him I find chefs are really interesting like version of artists because they spend their lives slaving over these things that um that disappear in two minutes you know um but he's he's got a great saying great quote which is like live you like if you want to make beautiful things you have to live a beautiful life um and i think it's that's kind of a thing that's always come out of out of me and 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 my wife soph whatever we do together it's always just kind of we just wanted to be beautiful stuff i mean i um i was in the music industry i played music for like made records and played guitar and toured toured and produced stuff and all that kind of Stuff for like years, like like if I say how long it'll date me, but you know, a well, long us. time. Us. <laughs> um I mean, pro- like, since probably since I was like sixteen, and then like I did it, I probably did it full time for like a good like fifteen years, you know, um or longer. And then, like, I think the music thing. I mean, every, you, you talk about like the everyone talks about the ten thousand hour thing, and I find it really interesting that people who are in our like image making craft, you find heaps of people who have come from another. Creative discipline, you know, and they've kind of crossed over, and they've done their ten thousand hours in another discipline, and then suddenly they realize one day that that all the skills they learned and and all the, all the problem solving and critical thinking they learned in that other creative discipline just completely translates to a whole bunch of other ones, like a shitload of other things, and suddenly they just find themselves like gear changing, doing all sorts of different things. And I really found that with music, that like um all the lessons that you learned and making music and making records and dealing with other creative people and figuring out good creative process translates like translates really well to like, like to filmmaking and to, to shooting stills. And and it translates really well to gardening and to, and to being an entrepreneur and to fly fishing. And, you know, it's, it's, it seems to just be the same skill set and you can, you can cross boundaries and suddenly you're like, Hey, this, this stuff gets effortless all of a sudden.
0: When, uh, when you started, your musical journey when you were 16 or, or however old, like you started as an individual and then I guess you morph into a band where you're amongst peers and somehow these, you know, talented individuals need to work together to create a song or an album or, or something like that. After you play in a band, then you go back to working as an individual again, um, as a photographer. So like, I don't know, what, what did you kind of learn from working in a team that translated well to becoming a, a solo worker as an entrepreneur?
1: I know it's, it's a good. I mean, it's a good thing. Like, that's a good. I think a good idea that's kind of divides the two things. But I, it's this. It's a similar process. Like, I think one of the things you learn about working with a group of people to make something, and the, the, like the first example that leaps to mind is actually is more like, you know, I'm always thinking about cinematographers and how they work with this ridiculously enormous talented team to produce this result. Um, I think the thing with 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 working with a team is that you have to have a good process. Like you can't just be, I mean, you know, there's the common idea that bands are like, you know, there's some kind of crazy autocratic figure and everyone else just follows along. But generally those kinds of bands don't last very long. You know, um, I was lucky to sort of make records with a lot of really great producers. Um, where often, I'd be like a session guitar player and you'd work with a crew of other people and you were really mindful of the chemistry and really mindful of like what, who was in charge and what they were trying to achieve and making sure that you did everything you could to back them up, you know, um, and and move the whole thing along. And I think you, you need a really good process when you're working in a team. Um, and then suddenly, if you're working on your own, you bring that idea of process back to the game because the thing is that you're always working in a team I mean if you're shooting a bunch of if you're shooting a bridal party somewhere you're working in a team if you're if you're shooting with a second shooter or like I get to shoot with Soph like my partner we we shoot equally you know, you're working in a team like if you're working alongside like a like a wedding planner or someone who's been a year working on on uh, you know their destination wedding in a ice cave in Greenland you know like you're working as part of a team um, whether the team's visible or not And I think all that gives you is just a sense that you need to communicate and a sense that you need to just have your head up and see what's going on um and be responding well to it not just you know head down doing your own thing blind to the rest of the world i think this it, it's a it's a skill that kind of like translates to so many things of like hey i need to bring the room with me i want to achieve this thing and i need to bring the room with me
0: we uh we kind of skimmed over a bit of your personal life and you mentioned that your wife and things like that but we also skimmed over a lot of more of your professional background that you're doing right now Um, why don't you kind of like share about what you do because you're more than just a photographer and and an amazing musician
1: yeah well I mean to 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 backtrack to Soph like um you know Soph and I my wife and I met when I was in a band and she we I just started shooting um because I was on tour all the time you know traveling so what seems like great places around the world, but when you're in a band, like, it, it it gets a bit boring. You know, you spend a lot of time just doing the traveling and then you're kind of like locked backstage somewhere. Or You might be in some fantastic city, but you don't really get to see it. Um, and so I just kind of started shooting to to stay sane. Um, You know, because you, you realize you have this wonderful access to this interesting world and you might as well start to document it. Soph had been working like in ad agencies and, you know, doing a lot of design stuff and going slightly insane as well. And she started to shoot to kind of keep herself alive. And, um, yeah, I was uh, playing at a festival and Soph was shooting some stuff backstage, some behind the scenes stuff. And... You Know, I was like, hey, it'd be great to see some of that stuff. You know, here's my number. Um, <laughs> well, kind of, but actually, actually, that's actually how it that's yeah, that's smooth, actually how it went down smooth. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty. Awkward. I remember that everyone was like waiting, waiting in the tour bus to go to the airport, and I just said to the guys, like, oh, I left something. Um, I left something in the green room. I gotta go and oh, and call my me- grandma. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah, I ran back ran back inside, like, like, um, with my name and my number written down on a little. And an and email written down on like a little bit of paper to try and find Soph somewhere. And then it was just like, um, um, hey, oh, uh, it'd be great to see some photos if you want to email them to me. Anyways, great things start in awkward ways. Um, but yeah, so we, we basically, we started as soon as we met, we kind of like started this romantic journey and this creative journey and this art journey together. So we kind of started shooting at the same time when we started our little thing called Bailey and Moore, which is like our, our photo brand. Um, And we started, you know, when we started shooting, we thought we wanted to shoot ad agency kind of stuff, you know, ads and that kind of content. And then when we started doing it, we were like, this is, like, lame. You've just got to do a shoot for, like, a massive pharmaceutical company to go, what are we doing? This is not what we want to do. And we, you know, this is the classic story. We shot a friend's wedding, and we were like, this shit is great. Like, you know, people in love are incredible. We can just do whatever we want. No one's stopping us. Like, what? Um, Do you actually believe and...
0: that though? Like, like, and I'm sorry to cut you off there because I, I feel like that is a cliche story, and I'm guilty of it myself. Jakob, my business partner, he's guilty of it, and and you can go down the line of people who, who say a similar thing. They shot their friend's wedding, and it was just like fireworks from day one. But did, was that actually the case with you? Because I, I, I'm curious with you because you have an interesting background before you did that first wedding.
1: So yeah, did... I um, I mean, I, I think I think w- the key to understanding that for us is understanding the friends that we shot who were like just batshit crazy people who were like, <laughs> you know, like it was literally like, what's even going on here? Is anyone in charge? Is anyone even running this wedding? Like what the, and then just full of won- that wonderful wild people who were our friends. And it was just kind of this experience that was like, is that, re-? because before we shot that first wedding, I hadn't even been to many weddings. I didn't even know when someone said wedding. I was just like, I don't even know what to think a wedding is. And then we show up to some of their friends getting married who are tremendously disorganized but wonderfully colorful. And you're just like, <laughs> this this is this is wild. Is this what a wedding is? like? Because weddings are, seem crazy. Look, there's booze. There's food. We're just taking photos. No one even knows what we're doing. They don't even know what they're doing. This is incredible. Um, obviously, the reality of what weddings actually so, yeah, it would kick in much later.
0: Okay, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, um, but, but like, like but, yeah. in those
1: first early
0: weddings, in that awkward phase when you're creating something new, was it something you had to overcome that you were a wedding photographer? Because the you know the stigma that comes with being a wedding photographer is is far removed from a, a touring musician, right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it is. It's it's certainly a different thing. I mean. We, when we first, Sophie and I first began, um, you know, this was an era when when weddings were kind of just being reinvented. I guess you know what what we call now, like like first whatever, first that first generation of everyone's reinventing stuff. And I think you can map how weddings were reinvented right alongside social media, like really, you know, percent. I totally Um, agree, and and you know, you can almost just track the, the phases of social media development with the phases of a wedding rein, reinvention. And so this is, we're talking like, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011, that first kind of crazy thing where people just started doing stuff that, you know, ideas traveled really fast, like the the, the, the Jonas Mason jar thing and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and it it was, we didn't think of ourselves as wedding photographers. We were just like, you know, whoa, I, I was currently going. I can't believe that I managed to make a career out of music, and now I've gear changed, and I can't believe I'm making a career out of being a photographer. Like, you know, you kind of like mouth agog briefly to go. I think I've crossed over into another creative field that I seem to know nothing about, and it might be working out. So it's, it's kind <laughs> of, I think, I think, it, and that's the stage where we, I think, where you start to. I mean, someone said to me once, um, a really great business mentor, friend of ours, was like, you know, the you start to think about being an entrepreneur when you find that you can do the same thing in a few different disciplines and you start to see some patterns, which is, you know, you, you stop being, um, you know, it's like if you're a, you stop, you become a chef when you go from just being able to fry an egg really well to understanding why eggs fry. And I think it's that same thing of going, Hey, I, I figured out how I could make money out of music and I can figure out how I can make money out of taking photos wait a sec, I'm seeing the same patterns. I wonder if I can do this with, with something else and with something else. So within your, um, with,
0: sorry to cut you off there, but I, I think that's an important point. Like within yourself, what did you see? What was the pattern that was emerging?
1: I, I think understanding, understanding how people respond to when you do something well, understanding how people respond to a really great piece of work. Um, it's the same the way that people respond to a song the way that people respond to an image the way that people respond to like a film when they stop seeing you and they see the thing that you made um, and you see you see that level of whoa people people like will pay for this people this this is like a you're not I, I think being in our culture in New Zealand and it's probably similar to you know like some some other European cultures like you know some of the Scandi cultures and things like we're we're a little bit backwards on on being forwards about making money, you know. Um, like in the states, people are a lot more like, "Hey, you know, this is what you do, and it's okay to get rich and all this sort of stuff." We come from a country that's got more of a socialist background, probably, and in some ways, um, identifying things that that, it, that make money is a bit of a almost a no-no in our culture. So when you go, wait a sec, people get a, this wonderful feeling from this thing that I make, and that's okay. And they're really happy about the transaction. Wow, I wonder if I can do more of this. Um, like in the in the early days of, of when we started making stuff, we all sorts of crazy things happened that was like trying to figure out how we could push out the boundaries of, of image making and push out the boundaries of what we were doing. And um, like one of the big ones was I remember like when the 5D Mark II came out and everyone's making films um, and there's this huge gear change. You know, and we still had these, we just managed to save. I mean, I remember the days when we were, you know, when we would basically pay ten dollars to hire a tripod for the day from a hire company and just be like, shit, can we afford to do that? You know, this is this is the early days of doing the stuff where you're just like, How are we making any money? How are we surviving? Um, and we saw people making films and we were like, shit, we want to make films, like films, that's super cool, but we we can't there's no way we can afford like a five D Mark II. Can't hire one. Um, maybe we'll just like make, we'll just try making some like stop motion films because we can make those on our, you know, with our cameras. And so we just started making some little things for ourselves. And um, then we made one like, like at a wedding you know, made a little five-minute stop-motion film kind of thing of a wedding, you know, by locking the camera off. Actually, most of the time, like, I remember in the early days, we could only afford to hire one tripod, and so um, Sophie and I would basically paper-scissors rocked for who got the tripod and who just had to balance their camera, like, on a on a table to try and make scenes or to make a stop-motion film of a wedding, you know, just crazy stuff. And suddenly, we made we these stop-motion films, and... Um, and it's such a stupid idea. It's such a crazy, stupid scheme to be, hey, let's make a live-action stop-motion film of a wedding day while we're trying to shoot stills as well uh, and try and get some kind of narrative together and animate a whole bunch of stuff when we don't even know what we're doing. And one of those got featured on, like, some big design blog. like not a, This is almost pre-wedding blog, you know. Um, I think Design Sponge, like, in, in New York. And it blew up. And I remember watching our um, our Vimeo channel – um on you know it might have been boxing day and the couple we'd made this first one for were like oh I think like I think the account's broken like it it just won't load and I was watching the views going up like by the in, in lots of a thousand and being like um I don't know is that good what's going on you know it was kind of before people would even talk about the idea of going viral um And then things just went crazy. We just got like all sorts of invites from all around the world for people to be like, hey, will you come and make one of these things for us in this place? And our our biggest experience of the wide world of traveling photography before that was a friend of ours who had said once, I got offered this job to go shoot a job in Europe, but I said no because it didn't seem very practical. And we'd been like, dude, you are crazy. Like we would have said yes straight away, but we're just two broke photographers. Um, so we were like, if we ever get an opportunity to do anything, we'll just say yes and we'll figure it out afterwards. Which has honestly been our philosophy ever since. Um, but yeah, people would just be like, hey, can you come make this thing for us in Cyprus, or can I make this thing for us somewhere in you know in Rhode Island, or can I make this? And we'd be like, yeah, sure. How hard can it be? Yeah, we'll come. We'll just figure it out. Who knows what? And so that just kind of started everything that we're doing now. Man, that's, that was a long, rambling story of how Sophie and I met and now find ourselves 10 years down the line with Bailey and Moore. But, yeah.
0: All right. I love it. I love it. There's the
1: back. That, that, that sums it up. No, I, I think our, our biggest thing that we've always taken with us is that we'll just figure it out. We've always thought that like, when if you're a couple getting married, trying to do something really wonderful with all your friends, you know, to celebrate this crazy life stage you're going through, like the last thing you need is someone on the end of the Skype call or the phone call or the email saying, yeah, it's really complicated and difficult. You know, you want someone to be like, whoa, you guys sound great. This sounds incredible. Hell yeah, we'll be there. Who knows how, but we'll be there. It'll happen.
0: So you've been doing this so a while you. um, and you've seen, you've seen the the trend of wedding photography kind of evolve alongside what's happening with social media and things like that. Do you see yourself kind of at the, the pinnacle of your wedding photography career where now it's, you're looking at other things. And of course you'd love to continue doing weddings, but you have other things on the go that kind of might be a little bit more long-term for you.
1: Yeah. We, I mean, we've, um, we've started like a few, a few different things, you know, like I think. Share my friend, of, share. Yeah. It's that thing of seeing patterns and going, oh, we'd love to do this. I mean, one of the biggest frustrations with, with creative business models is that they're not really scalable, you know, um, and scalability is a really interesting, this sounds like such a geeky entrepreneur thing to talk about, but scalability is every, is everything, you know, if you want to, if you want to sort of have a sustainable business kind of going on that you don't have to slave away and just exchange your hours for money. Um, And it's, it's really sort of a bad idea. So we, um, we started like a furniture hire business, like in New Zealand um, after coming back a bunch of times from say shooting in Europe and being in some wonderful villa in the North of Italy somewhere and seeing beautiful, everyone sitting at beautiful furniture. And we'd come back to New Zealand and be like, ah, it's just all this really average hire furniture yet placed in amazing locations on someone's uncle's farm overlooking a cliff by the sea on a South Pacific Island. Um, and we were like, Hey, why can't we have cool furniture too? So we, um, we imported a bunch of chairs, these really cool wooden folding chairs. And we had a furniture designer design us a cool minimalist trist table and we stored them in our front, our front like porch, believe it or not. And, um, you know, I got some friends of ours who were also in the styling game in Australia to come and be partners with us and run the thing. And then now it's like this, it's grown to this, it's probably four years in and, you know, we've got like a crazy warehouse and a couple of trucks and it's chock full of steel and wood and a workshop with guys making stuff and we kind of, and it's rolling ahead. And I think it's one of those things of going, ah, there's a scalable idea looks looks like an idea that other people can take on and make happen for you, you know, Um, which is that's code for saying something you don't have to work at every day. With Um, this,
0: with this idea with arcade hire, how particular were you in the beginning with uh, like your, your plan of action and and what you wanted to grow into? If you even thought about that, like, like what were some of the barriers for you and self to like press publish and go with that idea?
1: Like, i mean i think it's the idea of having some hunches and some ideas about what you think you know about how the market works you know and what you think you know about how 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 a business structure can function um and then just moving forward to go okay well let's let's wait for something to go wrong and prove prove our hunch wrong um and it's it was it's really just courage i think like I mean, money's money's always a thing. You know, you've got to find some money to pay for some stuff, and you've got to find some money to pay for a, a dude to design a thing, or, you know. Um, but money's pretty easy, to be honest. Like, courage is probably the hardest thing. You know, you've sort of got to go, okay, we're going to start. We don't really know much about this industry. We've got a few ideas from just trying to be really observant, but let's go until we fail, and then we'll figure it out from there, you know. Um, and it's it's really just that courage of going. We're not quite sure what's over the horizon, but we'll we'll hit go. And it took us it did take us a couple of years to get up the get up the courage enough to just go. Now we're just really curious. Like, would it work? Could it work? Would we even know how to like get this going? Like, how do we do it? And it it's that thing like I was saying earlier about um the, the biggest thing you learn from say you know being being in a band or doing any some kind of group creative thing is you learn how to bring the room with you you learn how to sort of have a good process and say hey everyone all right follow me we're going to do this thing and um you know if it doesn't work out hey we'll we'll figure out a plan b but i think it was one of those things of just the courage to just to start moving forward and um yeah it, it's been a pretty interesting journey like there's there's nothing like trying to scale up like a a large-scale business model and figure out how to run it to make you realize that when you're running a small creative business like you know, there's a lot of challenges that you just don't even have to face you know like like logistics and trucks and training employees and and design and dealing with you know object design and trademarks and
0: so as, as all this, this sort of stuff as our as this particular business is growing i'm curious like how did you um make the transition into being an employer, like, and taking on staff. I think that I'm particularly curious about that because we're kind of in, in that phase with a few of our businesses right now. So we're kind of like, Hmm, what's the first step? So what was like the first step for you to become an employer?
1: Um, I think like people are everything like that. That's, that's the bottom line. I think that's the bottom line in, in, in anything, you know, whatever you're doing, your footprint and your impression on people is the thing that that remains. Um, you know, when you first walk into a room, you know it's like it, it doesn't matter if you start throwing cheeseburgers and money around. People are always going to remember the kind of person you are. Cheeseburgers and money, actually, that's a pretty great. Um, we should start like a hip hop crew, <laughs> just called cheese, Cheeseburgers and Cash with like Brian Morrow. That'd be amazing. Um, anyway, no, I I think we found the right people. We've been so lucky with finding the right people and being really honest with them. Um, you know, not. I think it's, it's it's very easy when you're when you're trying to lead a bunch of people to have false bravado, and people see right through it. And if you've got really smart people working with you, um, you know, hopefully they're going to see right through that sort of stuff. But you need smart people around you to kind of you know to sort of keep you honest. But it was it was just really about finding the right people, and we've been lucky to um, to come across a handful of really great people. Who we can make mistakes with, and they'll stick with us, you know. Um, and I mean the, the the financial the financial burden of having, you know, contractors and then employees. It's it's pretty wild. It's a pretty wild. Um, I used to hear you know before when before we employed people, I used to hear other people who employed people being like saying that you know that they they laid awake at night realizing that they were providing helping to provide for someone else's family. And it was a, quite a huge burden on them. And they would really make moves very carefully and really think about, Hey, I, I'm re- now I'm responsible for a wider group of people. And I was like, that seems a bit weird. And then suddenly when you're in that situation of going, Oh, you know, we've every fortnight, we've got to pay, everyone's going to get paid. Um, and you become very vigilant about how your business model works. And I think if, if you respond to that stuff, well, um, it makes you more adventurous. It makes you more courageous. It makes you want to take new territory. It wants makes you want to expand, you know, your market and really have good process and be carefully looking at how the future rolls out. Um, if you respond to it badly, I think it just kind of crushes you under the feeling of, of expectation. and You're just like, whoa, you know. But it's I, I think you have to respond. I mean, you have to respond to challenges well. You know, you have to think, okay, if we fail you know, we've got a few backstops here and we can sort of fail backwards a little bit, but eventually we're, we're doing this to grow and we're doing this to take, you know, to take a really great idea and take it to the market because we think it's a great idea and we think other people will too. Um, with, uh, yeah. with
0: with this business, and I'm sorry to keep harping on it, but I'm pretty curious about it because like as an artist, you create something out of nothing and people hire you for what you create. So they're hiring you. And then you have a, a brand like Arcade Hire where people are hiring something that they they need, but there are other businesses who perhaps offer something similar. So you need to stand out in your market. And when I think about you over the years that I've kind of followed you, I feel like like content creation is something that kind of makes you irk a little bit. I think you made a Facebook post about it once where if you hear content, begin, oh, yeah. you're going to like freak out. The word content. So, so I want to like tie that into arcade hire. In the beginning, you, you need to do something to get noticed maybe you need to create content or, or 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 how did you go about getting that business noticed if something deep inside of you is kind of like ah oh, fuck content
1: um i i think it's just it just more like going like what do we know about? We know how weddings work. We know how that kind of stuff works. So we'll just start with that. We'll start with the people that we know. We'll start with everyone who's ever complained to us about the lame chairs that they've had to hire or or whatever, you know? And we'll we'll start with what we know and we'll expand out from that. And we just went um, we just went to everyone we knew who was in the wedding game and we're like, hey, we're gonna try and do this thing. Like, um, you know, if you think it's terrible, then, you know, we can take it, just tell us. But um, if you need some stuff, game on. And it was amazing how quickly it spread. I mean, it's one of those things that like, if your idea is of of the moment, um, you'll notice, you know, the the damn thing spreads like a virus. And that's one of the challenges of if you've got a new idea, and you bring a new idea to market, um, you're basically bulldozing a highway. You know, you're driving the bulldozer, but anybody who comes behind you can just drive the highway you've just made. You know, they go, Whoa, there's a great idea, and that person that's how you execute <laughs> it, and that's how you've done it. And they've they've taught the market how to how to love it. They've taught the market what they need. They've so you got you, you know, like we we um we were sort of first to market with with you know, the boutique sort of furniture idea in our in our market. Um, but basically a whole bunch of people came up behind us pretty fast. But you know, there's nothing like having your tail taste, ch- ch- Your tail chased. Did I say tail taste? I did. <laughs> there's nothing like having your having your tail chased. I've got, I'm drinking prosecco here at like ten thirty yeah, at night in New Zealand. Guys, Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. There's nothing like having people coming up behind you, chasing your tail to make you go, okay, we've we better figure our shit out and and figure out how we understand the stuff. I do? mean, there's so many there's so many things about competition too that you know I, I think, like. Like, creative people don't respond to competition very well. That is one thing I've always learned. Like they get defensive. They start, like, if someone, they start talking about somehow owning an idea or someone steals an idea. I mean, the bottom line is, if someone shows up doing the thing that you do and doing it better than you, that's just, that that should just be a wake-up call that you need to sort your shit out and do something new and do it better. Not be like, hey, I need to defend my patch. You know, how are you doing that same thing? What the hell are you stole my idea? You know, what? Who's got time to pour energy into that kind of defensive response when you could just be basically making your idea better? And if your idea is any good, it'll have a life as a second generation and third generation, and and it'll be able to be expanded. And if your idea is no good, then it doesn't deserve to be around anyway. So that's been one of the things of learning how we respond to competition. It's been it's been a really um, it's been a really expansive, interesting journey. We've had so many things happen where we've had enormous companies rip off our designs and we can't, you know, we can't take them to court. We can't, I mean, dealing with the trademarking process, all that sort of stuff. And it, it really makes you go, okay, how do we respond? How can we respond? Um, how do we turn our energy that we maybe want to use to just fight back into making what we do better? Let's do that. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's honestly been fascinating to sort of, you know, a little part of you sits on the sidelines and watches how you, how your team is dealing with some of these things
0: has uh and like it, within competition and forging that that path of your own the bulldozer on the highway and thinking about people coming up from behind you has starting arcade hire kind of shifted your thinking with Bailey and more a little bit and if it's uh, if if so like how
1: yeah it it, it has a lot i mean uh, about about scalability especially thinking about um, you know like I think in, in, in some ways what it's made us do is it's made us embrace Balian more for what it is and not try to make it into something else. And I, I think like we I, – I see in, 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 the, in the wedding industry, especially in wedding photographers, heaps of people trying to figure out how they can make their creative business scalable. And in some ways, a lot of them just aren't. You know, you just go, okay, well, then what they are is they're a thing that you can generate um, – maybe cash flow worth to build a scalable, another scalable business. But in some ways, some ways they're just, the beauty of them is that they're not scalable. You know, it's personality driven. It's a thing that you show up and people have this connection with you and with your work and you do this wonderful thing. But maybe you can't turn it into, you know, into a massive studio operation. Maybe you can't. I mean, maybe you can't. But um, maybe you can't. But I think what it's made us, what 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 has made us go is like, okay, we see, Failure more for um, the strengths that it has and realize that it's not necessarily a thing that we can make do this over here. We, we can use arcade for that but um, we can go really really deep on this one thing that it's good at and I think that's what that's that's what's been great about starting another couple of a couple of other things is that you sort of go ah I see how this fits you know in, in the idea of what what a business needs to be and it's certainly not any of this. But it is really, really great at being this, you know.
0: And you have one more, one more brand that you're working with right now, or that you started.
1: Yeah, um, we uh, Boxful is like um, is this thing where it came out of us. Like for Bailey and Moore, we um, we really, I mean, we'll probably get into the analog conversation later on, I'm sure. But like, um, we're really big on real things, you know. We're really big on people having an experience of real things, and we. Um, when we, we've we're lucky to have shot lots of like our our kind of couples that we shoot with Bailey and Moore tend to be like ad agency couples and filmmakers and people sort of from the creative creative fringes a little bit who are very suspicious of um you know of social media. Lots of them don't even have like social media accounts, you know, <laughs> like they're very suspicious of a lot of those traditional channels. Kind like we are a little bit to be honest. And and so they're very focused on real things, um, on tactile things and on that sort of experience. And so we've always been like, how can we deliver the end result of what we do in, in this really physical way that people can experience it? Because our people, the people that we shoot, they're kind of like us. You know, they love to touch stuff. Like We have a big vinyl collection. We've got our houses full of plants. We've got a huge prints on the wall there's there's stuff everywhere that you can touch and, and we've got a massive photo book collection you know all this sort of stuff it's very very real and when we go into the homes of, of the couples that we shoot we see the same stuff we're like ah we love the same stuff so we wanted to deliver things in a very tactile way I don't know if you've ever read David Sachs's Revenge of Analog but you know that's a total recommendation that you should read and kind of understand the journey of real things with, with our species, um, things you can touch. Anyway, um, we, yeah, so we spent, we spent a while working with a really great packaging designer um, who blew us, who just completely blew us away. You know, um, this, this English guy was living in New Zealand and we were like, um, we'd gone to a printer with an idea to make, a, to make a packaging thing for us years ago. And our printer had said, hey, you should talk to this packaging guy. We're like, ah, we can't afford to like spend money on a packaging design. He was like, just go talk to him. He's he's you know he's probably half drunk. He's really interesting, and um, Matt, our designer, was just like, hey, um, I'll give you you know give me five hundred bucks. I'll give you a bunch of ideas. If you hate them all, I'll just give you your five hundred bucks back. We're like, that's pretty sweet. That's pretty <laughs> sweet because, because, and I'm I'm just going. Well, even if we like the ideas, I'm just going to tell you that we don't like the ideas anyway, and then I'll get my five hundred bucks back. Um, yeah. anyway, after after about ten seconds with him, we were like just mouths wide open, like we had no idea about the thinking behind how people experience packaging and even even we started to see all the things around us like even just cereal boxes differently and everything just go shit there's so much thinking about how people experience and go through a process of being introduced to a product and so we um we went through a process for probably like three or four generations of stuff over a bunch of years with with this guy Um, and we ended up with a really great result um, that we won like a like in New Zealand, there's a thing called the best called the Best Design Awards, which are right across all the design fields. And we won a structural packaging gold award for that um, a couple of years ago. Um, and it, it, this thing got a lot of attention on on packaging geek packaging geek websites around the world. Like there's so many the level of packaging geek stuff in the world is off the charts. And so it, this little package thing that 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 we created with Matt. Um, became like a, a mini celebrity in the packaging world. And because of that, we had heaps of people being like, hey, can you know, can we can will you manufacture it? You know, will you do this? Can we can we buy it? Can we and we're like, nah, it's just too complicated to make. It's really difficult. So what is it, so, – it's
0: oh sorry, maybe you're gonna allude to the next it's,
1: yeah, it's yeah. And it's 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 really all it really is, is it's just it's like a um I mean if you go to boxwell.co you can, you kind of see it. But like it's it's just like a book. It looks like a book with covered in a beautiful, you know, embossed branded um, cover, but you open it up and there's a whole bunch of little um, things inside it, you know, where there's a USB and there's a space for prints and a little swing tag and some other stuff, you know, and and it goes in a, a beautiful sort of bespoke mailer package. And the idea is that, um, you know, people, people love to open layers. Like we um, – when we were first starting Bailey Moore, we got in touch with a guy, Peter Buchanan-Smith, who was a designer I'd followed in New York, who designed a bunch of the Wilco record covers, and he had um, won a bunch of Grammy Awards for, for different album design things. And we really admired him, and he, he started a brand called Best Mate, you know, which, which whether you think it's too hipster or not, it's a remarkably well-thought-out, successful New York brand, which I think he's just sold as well. And... um. We ordered a bunch of stuff from him with Best Mate. We wanted him to do our branding, and he was like, oh, I've actually just started this thing with this axe I'm restoring. I might be pretty busy. And we were like, oh, okay, fair enough. And then, you know, a couple of years later, it grew into this massive empire. Um, But, yeah, we'd order stuff from him, and he'd send stuff, you know, with a little cool handwritten note, you know, because we had this sweet little connection. But it would be all the packages that would arrive from Best Made. Um, there might be just a pocket knife in this thing, but there were all these layers that you would open and you get this package from the other side of the world, come, comes to New Zealand, arrives you know, with beautiful kind of semi-beat-up packaging and we'd just be opening layer after layer of goodies and things and you're unpacking stuff. And we were just like, that feeling of unpacking is this wonderful experience. And so Matt designed us this whole Thing that was kind of similar, where you you rip open this mailer and then you pull out this thing and you open this thing and you pull out and th- like and you're unpacking all these layers. And to us, it was a thing that should evoke the feeling of when you'd um, you know you've had this mountaintop crazy experience like of a wedding day, um, and it's been wild, and then you're getting the final delivery of all of the stuff, um, prints and 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 the files and a little booklet and all sorts of bits and pieces and a handwritten note and and a little postcard thing to put on your fridge with a cool little saying on it and all this kind of beautiful stuff. And it should evoke this feeling of 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 like you're unpacking it. You know, this things arrive from half we would we, we we'll shoot a couple in New York and we'll come back to New Zealand and we'll edit everything. We'll send the send the package away and it arrives hopefully slightly beat up, covered in a cool with a cool New Zealand Postcode <laughs> thing on it, and they rip it open, and but you know, it's it's the same thing of uh, unpacking these layers because I think that the, the human condition is one of you need to you need to warm up to things. Um, you can't just get you know it, that that's that storytelling right there. So, you know, warming you up to an idea. So with
0: this, I'm sure Emma in Helsinki or or whoever uh, is listening to this and is like, oh, I want them to do my packaging. Is this a scalable business, Emma.
1: <laughs> Emma in Helsinki. Is it Hi Emma? Oh, I don't from know. Helsinki. <laughs> There's lots um, of Emma's up here. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that is that that's a big Finnish finish name? Um. Yeah. It, it is a scale. I think it is a scalable business. I think that's an interesting journey because we're 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 kind of fresh to it of trying to figure out how you can because we really believe in that um in that product from seeing people experience it. We're just like shit. This is really great. And so we've we've made we've manufactured it for probably maybe 20, 20 or 30 different photographers, and we've probably got about that many in the line, you know, in, in the works is at the moment going on. Um, but for us, it's figuring out how can we manufacture this to keep the, this, this bespoke kind of like character with it, but make it more accessible for people. Like it's one of those interesting things of going, I remember our packaging designer saying, oh, you're going to let other people have it, but don't you guys want it exclusively? And we're like, well... Yes, but also on the, on the same front, like if you're a couple, like at a wedding, like you don't have an experience of another wedding photographer. You only have an experience of the one or the person who shot your wedding. So it's not like, you know, it's, you're really not yeah, competing yeah, with anyone. Yeah. It's kind of like, hey, yeah, it's, it's yeah, I don't oh, know no, if I explain it well. But, you know, it's, yeah. Um, and so it, it, it doesn't hurt for someone else to be able to give their couples a wonderful final delivery experience. Doesn't hurt what Bailey and Moore are doing with our final delivery experience, you know, because because no one knows. Um, no, so we, we yeah we're, we're currently just trying to figure out all sorts of interesting things about how to how to manufacture that really well. Learning things like you know if if you want to sort of hot thermoform some beautiful paper into a shape that the minimum order is 2.2 million. So things like that, (laughs) you know, welcome, welcome to my world. Um, But we'll, we'll, we'll figure, we'll figure it out. And I think, I think we've, you know, um, bit by bit, we're learning how we can bring that to market. And I think our motivation with that is not just having a scalable business, but it's one of those things of going, shit, this is really great when people experience this idea of delivery and it goes, it flies in the face of like we've had so many people say to us, yeah, but you know, these days you just give people an online gallery. We're like, yeah, everyone else does. Like, this is this is about fan building. This is about like, you know, we we're we're pretty passionate about the idea of um... Ah, listen, let me tell you something. Like a turning point for us with Bailey and Moore was um, I'm just gonna spill all the secrets. We um we we were like We made these great booklets, like, early in the game. Um, And we, because we just love offset press. We love the look of offset press, you know, which is just, that's just geeky printing talk for um, not digital. You know, where you make plates and, and you have a really great quality paper stock and the ink and the color sinks into the paper. It looks beautiful. You know when you're seeing an offset press. You know, magazines... Large run magazines are printed offset press, and the difference between seeing, a, a, you know, how how a photo looks when it's printed in say monocle versus how your photos look when they come off your home yep. printer, you know, that's the difference. Um, just to give you the massive different gap there, and so we were just in love with offset press, and we were just like, hey, it'd be really cool to do like a little um. A little promo booklet for Bailey and Moore, and it was inspired by me buying some nudie jeans, which are kind of my standard denim. That's a it's, that's I just, a I just company, ha- I think. yeah, man, it totally is. Um, yeah, my my wardrobe is just like a uniform, and all of the pants are just <laughs> nudies in various <laughs> stages. I've there's about there's about like thirty six pairs in my in my wardrobe, um, and. Yeah, like they they used to come. I think they maybe still do. They come with this tiny booklet stapled into the back yeah. pocket, right? And it was just the most beautiful thing, which just described the process of making them, the process of aging them, a bunch of different um, you know models of jeans, and it was these beautiful like Scandinavian photos of glorious looking people wearing ripped up jeans doing stuff, and it was tiny. And like, I just carry it around with me and just look at it because it was just this beautiful mini creation. And we were like, why can't we make something like that for like Bailey and Moore? Um And we went to our printer and they're just like, mm, that shit's expensive. And We're like, who cares? Let's make one. So we, um, yeah, we made this little kind of like, what size would it be? A6 booklet, which was a bit larger than the nerdy one, but that's kind of. I don't know what that is in American sizes, kind of like the size of like a, like a, an yeah. iPhone plus, you know, Um, you know, 36 pages printed beautifully. And then we just started carrying these around with us. And instead of having business cards, when someone would be like, what do you guys do? We'd be like, yeah, we do this. We shoot people in love. Like it looks like this. Here's the thing, you know, nice. um, and, 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 and they would be full of the, that little book we've done, like maybe four editions, I think. And they're full of, like we shoot a lot of film, so they're full of film, like Rollerflex photos and square format, like just regular thirty-five mil film or digi stuff. And hopefully our color style I mean, hopefully you can't tell the difference, it all looks the same. Beautifully printed, looks amazing. And it was this thing of we just started to go, people love real stuff and they love to look at a thing. You can give someone like your you, your, your your website address or your Instagram, and they're going to get on their phone and be distracted by 300 other things. But you give them, like someone on a plane is like, what do you guys do? And you give them a little book, and then that's their bedtime reading, you know, for the next 12 hours till you get to LA. They're just like, shit, look at this thing. It's printed better than anything on this plane. Like they're just like, you know, they put it in their purse, they put it in their briefcase, they're showing their friends. And we've always carried those things around with us and we're just amazed at how far and wide they go and that was our first experience of the difference between giving someone a physical thing mm-hmm. and a digital thing and we were like shit we're, this is this is such a fan building thing you know someone would, we carried them to weddings with us right and someone will just be like you know any excuse we've got you know where someone will ask a thing and we'll we'll whip this out to be like hey this is like i don't know whatever you know if someone asks like a florist, it's just like, how do I find you guys? We give them the mm-hmm. book. Um, if a if a grandma at the end of the night is just like, you know, she's like, oh my my, you know, our, my bloody whatever, my brother was a wedding photographer. He used to shoot on film. On wow, and we we're like, yo, we shoot some film. Hey, here's what it looks like. Check it <laughs> out, grandma. And she's like, yo, she's like, yo, mothers, this is like great. What? So so you know, I, um, like, did a
0: like. Uh, what do you say to sum you up in a way it comes back to like the dirt in the hands with the gardening from when you were growing up. And that kind of has carried through with all the things you do, like with what you do, it seems like you could probably transition to a hot dog stand and it would work out because Cy Moore is an interesting guy. And you've kind of like proven that with people gravitating to your next ventures. Like, I think we can, we can agree with that. So what I'm selfishly curious about is like do you see yourself getting into something totally different like
1: politics
0: because like
1: oh lot man i like i think about that i think about that all the time like this is this is such a crazy thing like we are at such an interesting stage of of the world of going um i'm i mean i'm always thinking like like this is an interesting time to be alive because i think there's a few generations now going, wait a sec, everything that, that came before us, it doesn't really appear to be working out, you know, it's not working, like the 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 era that we inherited from sort of post-World War II, from the baby boomers, which is like, you know, the way economics work, and the way ecology works, and the way society works, and you know, the free market, and all these other things, we're sort of going, wait a sec, this doesn't really seem to be working out that well, you know. Um... Should we try a new way? And every time we come across someone who's young somewhere, you know, some kid who's 18 or 19, who's just got firing fire in the belly, we're just like, go get elected somewhere. Go get elected to your local bloody community board. Go get elected to, you know, to a board of directors somewhere at a company. Just start making decisions and start telling people to listen to you because, like, all the old people don't seem to know what they're doing either, you know? I mean, just get, just get brave and just start making decisions, and you'll you'll probably cock a bunch of them up. But eventually, you'll figure out how to lead. You know, in about ten years of cocking that up, you'll figure out how to lead a bunch. of So, what of about people. yourself,
0: though? What about we we're going like, to like, need, we're gonna need you in yourself, about ten years? What's stopping you from? Or maybe you do do that. Maybe you are like <laughs> an elected official of some sort.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. an elected official. No, it's. I I think it's it's an interesting. I I find that challenging to sort of go. Hey, you know what? What skill set? Um, Apart from critical thinking, have I learned from everything that we've done? Um, and I, I think, I think probably one of the significant things I'm learning as I get—I mean, I'm not old, but you know—as as you get older and you kind of go, ah, oh, you see people with a lot of talent coming up underneath you—is—is is, it's it's really really easy when you get a bit older to feel challenged by younger people doing really great things coming behind you. Um, you know and to get defensive and all that sort of stuff and i see that pattern repeating in lots and lots of creative people you know who who don't respond well to to talented younger people um, but i think the thing that i'm learning more and more is that like you know like basically younger people doing great things, whether it's leadership in politics or it's leadership in creative things or, or or leadership in really creative business ideas, which is sustainable, is that they need really strong shoulders like to stand on from the generation that's sort of, you know, maybe doing a bit of groundwork for them. And so I've become really committed to the idea of um, you know, supporting young people doing stuff, supporting young, you know, I when I was trying to get a bunch of ideas going when I was a bit younger, I'd always feel like I just hit the wall with older people being like, you know, join the queue, whatever, you got to do the hard yards, you got to whatever. And every now and then I come across some fantastic, open minded, older entrepreneur person who would just be like, just get after it. Just get out there, screw it up. And, you know, when you feel beaten up and crying like you failed, come back, have a whiskey with me, and we'll figure it out, you know, but just bloody get on with it. And I, th- I think, um, yeah, I don't even know I like what I'm it talking about I like
0: now. It. I feel like I'm talking to a wise, but old you know, philosopher like, like, and you just kind of let him go, and interesting things pop oh. up.
1: <laughs> Lol. No, it's it, it, I, I think, I think there's a um, yeah, you know, you, you have a, if, if you're younger, if you're younger with great ideas, you have a responsibility to stand easy on the shoulders of the people who came before you, and if you're older with great ideas, you've got a responsibility to build really strong shoulders and just take it on the chin, you know? Like, young people figuring things out can be a bit painful, but, like, what the hell? Just let them run. And, you know, when when they, when they fall over, just help them to get back up because those people, are the ones, those kids are the ones who are going to bloody save us from whatever this horrific doom is that we might Isn't be looking down the barrel saying, like
0: you know <laughs> that's a that's
1: a that's te- a terrible way that's a terrible that's a,
0: that's a terrible finish okay what, how about we here's, need to here's, talk the, about here's the finish we here's the finish talk you talk can go on with what,
1: an, analog you're down, analog you're processes to... we need to talk There's so many. Things okay how about this about. what's right with the world why don't we finish on that what's right with the world oh my goodness there's so many things right with the world um if there's one thing that's shooting people in love teaches you is teaches you that humans are humans are wonderful you know you put the people around them who love them um like we're always saying to couples like when they they'll they'll ask us like oh what's the what's the experience like on a wedding day and we're like listen you look up and for the first time in your life every set of eyes staring back at you will be 100 percent for you and you'll realize at that moment that it's never happened before and it might never happen again but the feeling that everyone is for you in that moment is just the wildest and that day is the wildest thing ever and it makes you believe in people I think what's what's right with the world is the fact that people are better than we give them credit for people lovers are wonderful people are wonderful you know people have got goodness inside them we have so many um, so many couples who've got just weird shit going on in their family you know with parents have broken up have never talked to each other for 10 years or whatever and they'll always be like oh we're afraid what these people we'll, we're afraid what's going to happen when these people are together in the same room and we're all, Sophie and I are always like, listen, you'll find that they'll get this shit together, they'll realize, and they think that they're just getting themselves together for this one day just for you guys, but that'll be the thing that changes them, and it'll all be fine after that. You guys are the catalyst to just, to, to, to healing the situation and doing whatever. The, capac- the capacity for human beings to just forgive and love and be wonderful is is so immense and i think we're lucky that we get to see it you know once or twice a week all all year long um that i yeah, i feel like we should just have a column in the guardian to just write about this stuff <laughs> the guy can't i can't believe i just brought up the guardian sounds it's like so, you're the one that needs to do so. it <laughs> that's 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 so liberal of me i can't believe that you got me talking about all this other stuff and we haven't even talked about like color style and analog processes and the feedback loop and cinematographers and all the great bloody like um you know academy award nominated films that are shot on film and how you know calibrating your audience by all these things
0: here's here's your question and it's coming from a, a very talented guy named mark Riley is film
1: an escape from or a commitment to reality for you oh it's definitely i think it's definitely a commitment to reality when we um when we started shooting a lot of film it was probably right in the midst of early days of photography for us when there were some batch of crazy color styles going, and there still are you know and 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 to be fair it's very very easy to lose your way when you're staring at a screen and just nudging a slider in lightroom and we started shooting um, film to just get a, to have a different workflow, a, a workflow that was miles away from, you know, this digital workflow. Shooting It was basically shooting personal work, like for album covers and, and stuff with wonderful musicians that we knew on film. And then just like, you know, sending their rolls away to the lab and letting it be like that. And we started to realize that the colors that we were getting back from the lab were far more how we wanted our work to look than maybe what we were getting out of the digital process, and it became this really great north, you know, like ah, that that oh. that calibrates us. This is what we want to look like, and it kind of kept us honest with being ah, let's you know, if we want our work to have this this life and this vibrancy and this longevity, I'm doing everything I can to not say the word timeless, um, but you know, <laughs> to, to 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 have a what to have a shelf life. That's a, yeah, that's a great phrase. To have a shelf life. Um, far beyond what we were what we were seeing from maybe a lot of people around us you know in, in digital wedding photography color fads. Um, we needed to kind of keep ourselves calibrated with shooting certain film stocks. And so we've kind of stayed pretty true to that. Um, and I think film's not an escape, but it is a way of keeping keeping us in a process of working and understanding and seeing color um, that's consistent, you know. That's not that's that's not built around, you know, the latest presets. It's not built around whatever Adobe does with their color space. It's not built around whatever Canon does with a sensor, or Fuji does with a sensor, or Sony does with a sensor. It's just like ah, color looks like this. And I think the way we think of film is it's like it's like real life, just a really good, slightly more saturated, slightly more contrasty version. Why did you avoid saying timeless? Oh, because it, it just, you know, it's just—you know—it's one of those tropes that's just like, oh, we want to work to look timeless. And I'm, I'm when people say that to me, I'm like, do you? Like, what are you even talking about? It's like when people say fine art, fine art wedding photographer. I'm just like, well, which one is it? Fine art or wedding? Like, what are you talking about? It's I, I, I think it's just one. It's one of those things like cliches. I think cliches work. Um. The reason why there are cliches, like a cliche, when you say a cliche word, all it means is that word ceases to exist. People don't hear what you're saying anymore. And timeless is just one of those bloody things. We, our, our, um, our bookshelves full of, you know, beautiful photo books, um, you know, people like Fred Herzog and you know, like um, Ernst Haas from and, Vancouver. Yeah. Oh my. You know, like mod- a good Canadian product. Modern, modern color. Modern color is just like such a, is, is such a, such a bloody classic. You know, Stephen Shore, Uncommon Places. All this, all the sort of work that we re- that we really admire and that we would love our work to, to look like composition wise and color wise. And one thing that always strikes me, and it strikes me with cinematographers as well, is that. Um, I mean, gosh, the cinematography is such an, such an incredible, we could, we could talk for three hours about that, but you see this thing, um, with this era of people shooting on, on certain film stocks, whether it's Kodachrome or Ektachrome or, you know, whatever it is, um, or like with cinematographers now, you know, like 80% of the nominated films at the Academy Awards are shown on film. Heaps of people don't even know that, you know, it's just, it's still this valid medium, um, is that the colour generally looks the same. I mean, there's, 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 there's these differentiations, slight different things, you know, going on. Obviously, there's the different light. But the colour is generally the same. And the thing that differentiates, like, the stills photographers and cinematographers and directors is how they tell a story. Um, but I feel like lots of wedding photographers uh, maybe... <sighs> Maybe feel trapped by how a story looks, you know or they, they feel like they 're stuck with the same story, or they haven 't developed their storytelling skills, so they think that they 'll make themselves look different to everyone else by having a crazy color style or having a dramatic color style and it 's like if you have a look at you have a look at cinematographers the and directors and people making feature films and the amount of money and thought and everything that goes into them the color generally looks the same but the signature thing that they're doing that makes them different from someone else is how they tell a story i love that that's good i'm glad the glad we've faded into the film talk <laughs> yeah eventually i mean is this there's so many there's so many things about
0: no but you're totally right it's like um the uh the Photoshop action isn't going to make you a better storyteller, basically.
1: Yeah making making your making your color style look more distinct and dramatic, so when people see it and say, "Oh, I know who made that," doesn't make you a good storyteller. What makes you a good storyteller is being like, "Ah, oh, they, I forgot who was telling the story, but I, you know, I, 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 I saw the story, and I, I keep seeing these same." keys to how someone opens up a character and how someone sees light and how someone deals with this situation or how someone leads me through a narrative or how someone takes me on an emotional, you know, l- l- the emotional track always runs the same way. There's so, there's so many things. One of the things, I mean, I know you, you know, we didn't mean to talk about film, but hard luck. Um, <laughs> no, what, what, one of the, one of the most things, like, like, these yeah. sent some good, uh, very dear friend who's slightly crazy, our wonderful Australian friend. Um, we, we're always talking about analog processes, that you don't need to be shooting film to, to, to learn from an analog process. Um, and that there's some really interesting things about how the feedback loop works, about how audiences are calibrated and all sort of stuff. But one of the big things is um, so many feature films are, are, are still shot on film, have been shot on film, you know, for, 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 so, for so long. There's, there, it's not that there's this renaissance of film and cinema, it's always been there, you know, it's, it's, it, it cranks on. I mean, I could go through and list so many wonderful, you know, from like last year and this year's Academy Award nominees, you know, like, I don't know if you've seen I, Tonya shot on 35 mil. It's like beautiful. Or Dunkirk shot on like 65 mil, you know, Kodak vision three or right through to, you know, like first man shot on, a, I think what, 16 mil, 35 mil. And I'm just getting geeky now, but you know, this huge range of wonderful films and what you've, what, you forget is like when you're a stills photographer, you're always thinking about yourself as an artist. Um, but, but cinematographers and directors are often thinking about how the audience is calibrated. And it's really worthwhile thinking that like, if we're making, if we're shooting stuff and making stuff, whether we're doing wedding storytelling um, for an audience of regular people who go to the movies, um, they're calibrated by the films that they see. They're calibrated by these mass market films, by the colour in them and the storytelling in them, and it's easy to forget that they're calibrated to a to a level and a quality of storytelling and a level of colour and tone um, made by some of the greatest image makers and storytellers who have ever walked the planet. Probably, you know, the current crop that we've got, like the art, just gets better and better and better. And it's easy to think of of blockbuster movies as being you know, of a kind of, as an artist, you go, oh, whatever. It's like, you're kidding me. You, when's the last time you saw Roger Deacon's work? You know, when's the last time you, you know, um, th- this is incredibly beautiful stuff and it's mass market stuff. And the audience that we are telling stories to and for, um, not just with their storytelling style, but with their color and their tone, um, are calibrated to have very, very high expectations, you know, um, they're calibrated so how
0: do you so how do you meet those expectations? Well, Through better stories yeah
1: no i I think it's I think it's worth I think it's worth looking at at how people who are telling those stories do the storytelling and this is back to the color the color style thing this is back to tone and color and, and and the idea of where is your north from and how are you making sure that the work that you're making now will match the work that you're making in three years and five years and ten years and will match the work that you made five years ago and it, it comes back to that thing of being, the obsession with having crazy, whack job color styles uh, versus a, a a disciplined storytelling process, but the color style stays the same. Um, I don't even know if we're making sense anymore. What it was even? I had too much prosecco. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I, I I think I think it's it's a it's a really amazing thing to to think that um you know as artists we think about ourselves a lot. You know, it gets a bit narcissistic about I want to make this thing and I want people to respond to it in this way, and I'm making this thing. Um, but but people in people in the film game often think about what the audience sees and what's the easiest way for them to experience an emotion, easiest way for them to walk through a story, and it's easy to forget that that our audience is calibrated by really really great really really great art. Someone um, I heard someone compare it to um, the idea of if you think about the Belle Epoque, like in in Paris and that, that certain era in the twenties and you know, well post post World War One and some do can some just bum off the street you know with with very little education and no money can walk into a into a gallery and can see this crazy vibrant current work by you know by Picasso and be calibrated by it to go ah this is what the world should look like you know it looks like cubism or it looks like here yeah. um and it's it's easy to forget that the the people who see our stuff are they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for you know they understand how colour and tone work and they understand good storytelling innately, even if they don't realize that they know it, because they've been exposed to, you know, to to Spielberg. They've been exposed like yeah. th- these these are some pretty remarkable storytellers. And the standard, the expectation is very high. Um all of this to say, think carefully, you know, think 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 strongly about what you're doing and do it very deliberately and very, very well. Don't be faddish. Don't just slavishly follow things like um, oh, it's preaching you're preaching yeah it's, but you know it's 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 this gosh like so, so, so and I and the crew that we've got here in New Zealand we're all pretty devoted to, to 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 watching films to seeing films and you know things over and over I mean to the point where like um like I wanted to, I wanted to scan a bunch of a bunch of Roger Deacons films and I, I bought a 35 mil print of no country for old men and started running it through the scanner and just being like whoa look at this shit this is this stuff's incredible Oh really? um yeah you know and, it, and it, it just makes you reconsider the art of the art of filmmaking and then and then the audience who's who have seen these films and then suddenly going shit these are the same people that i'm making stuff for i've up my game you know um yeah i don't even know how, we, how we look
0: more a 30-minute chat has turned it's a, into a longer one, and I'm thankful for it, uh, hey. but I'm sure we could go on for another hour and a half. Yeah. One last question for you, though. Um, let's say you had to sit in a theater, a cozy theater, and listen to somebody do a 45-60-minute presentation who who comes from our, our world, not somebody, you know, not Oprah. So <laughs> who would you be interested in sitting and, and listening to do that 45-60-minute talk?
1: Gosh, so many, so many people. Oh, um, gut, gut reaction. Listen, we like, like I heard um, Aaron Huey, NetGeo photographer, speak like a few years ago. Blood just completely, completely blew me away. And he's he's from our he's from our world, but then at the same time he's not, you know. Um, and I I found that the straddling of the two worlds like really interesting. He's a dude who does like, who does you know like. Six, seven, eight-year longitudinal projects for like the New York Times on, on alcoholism and suicide in Navajo communities and stuff like that, and it, it made me go, um, it made me go like, whoa, like this is we we share the same skill set, we share the same, you know, the, the same way of using light to tell stories and all this sort of stuff, but he, um, his his commitment to human beings was so much deeper than mine. It actually he really changed, like like how I thought, but. All that to say, like, when I see those same qualities in people who are in the wedding world, who do stuff that we do, who have a commitment to to representing people really well, you know, with compassion and with dignity, but also with vibrancy in really interesting ways, like fur. Gets me the (laughs) grandmaster. Gets me gets me gets me every time. He brings that to our he brings that all those things that I admire from so many photographers and other disciplines into our world where it's just like, whoa storytelling like unexpectedness like an understanding of how people work and what drives them that kind of comes through in the imagery you know like narrative and completely abandoning narrative all of these things bloody hell
0: yeah he's one of a kind and lucky for you he's presenting right after you next month so do your thing and then chill in the chair no pressure no pressure look man let's cut it off otherwise right. i swear i could keep talking to you and
1: next month i can't wait to see you and uh we can we, talk in the flesh we shall drink my friend and we shall yeah we shall we bad. shall talk cheers and film
0: yeah and just like be all fancy down in uh, south of france
1: i can't wait
0: <laughs> all right
1: cool man thank right. you for this travel safe we'll, t- we'll talk to you soon
0: is A-Cast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're gonna love. Hi, folks. This is Rick Wilson from The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. And I'm Molly Chiangpast, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. Every Tuesday and Friday, we have fun, sharp conversations with people like Mary Trump, who reveal why her uncle is the worst president we've ever had. Or Ben Stiller on how the world of comedy is changing thanks to our political landscape. Tune in to The New Abnormal to hear us have fun conversations